it was stated that intermittent fasting has little to no long-term health benefits. That's not what I said. Uh, I thought that it has been confirmed to improve insulin, uh, improve sensitivity to insulin, and the problem of insulin resistance is a big topic, so I was surprised to hear that intermittent fasting wasn't more accepted this weekend. So what I said was that there are no unique benefits to intermittent fasting over any other type of diet that's matched for calories. For weight loss purposes. For weight loss purposes, yeah. for which extends to things like insulin resistance, diabetes, hypertension, et cetera. There are no unique health benefits associated with intermittent fasting over the same type of diet, or a different type of diet with the same amount of calories, suggesting that there's nothing uniquely beneficial to intermittent fasting. Now, the people on the internet will say, but your telomeres or your growth hormone or your this or your that. And it's like, that's great idea. Okay, I'm glad that you read a physiology textbook. That's great. Where are the citations suggesting that this actually moves the needle forward with respect to human health? Because we don't have those studies right now. The latest two meta-analyses, one came out in 2019, one came out in 2018, suggests that there's no benefit for weight loss and no objective health benefit that's unique to intermittent fasting. It doesn't mean that intermittent fasting is bad. If that's your jam, if you're like, look, man, I get up, have coffee, roll out the door, go to work, don't eat until lunch, and then I eat until 9 p.m., and then I stop eating again, and that allows me to be adherent with the correct calorie level, hit my 10 servings of fruit and vegetables per day, hit my fiber goal, maintain enough lean body mass that comports with long-term health outcomes, train appropriately, live an active and fulfilling life, then Woo, rock on. <laughs> on the other hand, suggesting that more individuals should switch to an intermittent fasting diet to achieve those goals is not is incorrect too. If it's your, if it is in fact your bag, baby, like switch <laughs> or continue. But if it's not, there's no unique benefits there either. So I'm not against intermittent fasting any more than I'm in support of intermittent fasting. Does that make sense? All right. <laughs> we will find out. I'll be curious to see what comes of this chrono nutrition stuff. But I agree. As of now, I have no reason to recommend it over anything else. Sure, yep. I like the Austin Powers reference. Uh, you're welcome. Austin, speaking of Austin Powers, discussed the processes, the processes of primary and secondary pain sensitization of an area to an acute injury. Is there any evidence that secondary stress process persists well after the injury is healed and is there any tendency for the secondary process to delocalize i.e lead to increased pain response in areas other than where the original injury occurred yep yes that's exactly what happens so the question here is about secondary or central sensitization which is somewhat of a poorly understood process but in general remember i described how acute sudden injuries uh, tend to heal in a matter of days to weeks but this process of, sen of sensitization, both at the tissue level and in the nervous system, the secondary sensitization process begins at the time of an injury. Now, in some people, this sensitization resolves as the injury heals and you go back to normal and you have no residual effects. In some other people, the local sensitive sensitization improve resolves, but the secondary sensitization persists or even worsens over time. So their nervous system gets kind of like ramped up, gets into a wired up state where they're generally more sensitive. And the hallmarks of this are two phenomena, one called allodynia, which refers to when you have pain in response to non-noxious stimuli, meaning that things that are not normally painful are now painful to you. And another would be hy hyperalgesia. Hyperalgesia was described a situation where things that are typically painful are more painful than they would otherwise be. And it's not just restricted to the local area of the initial insult or the initial injury or more pain, more tender everywhere. 
Um, so those are hallmarks of secondary or central sensitization. What we don't know is why this happens to some people and not others, right? Why this progression tends to happen. Um, and we also don't have very clear mechanisms of resolving it outside of what we typically do to treat individuals who have chronic persistent pain through education exercise and working them back to normal function. Somehow some magic happens and people can, that can kind of, uh, kind of ramp back down over time. But it is a relatively poorly understood process. There's tons of research going into this, research in the level of the spinal cord or at the level of the brain and pharmacology research and in, in psychology research. I think that as of now, if I had an individual who had uh, sudden new onset pain, um, an assessment of their pain self-efficacy, and there's a validated questionnaire for this for pain self-efficacy, if I could assess that right off the bat, that's gonna be probably my best predictor of their likelihood to progressing to chronic pain yep. um, or a persistent pain state. Um, and so that's the main thing that I'd be working on is, is trying to beef that up and get them engaging in activity and, and, and addressing their thoughts and fears and beliefs and things like that. But I don't have any medications that can prevent this. I don't have any surgeries or injections that can fix this. I don't have any anything else. It's a really bizarre process. And you know, eventually, maybe in a few years or a few decades, if we're still doing this seminar and we're talking about oh, central man. sensitization, I'll have a better idea of what's going on then. But yeah. Uh, Jordan, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> Do you say Panera or Breadco? I say neither because we don't have those in San Diego. No, I say St. Louis Bread Co. to anyone who will listen to me because, <laughs> yeah, I'm representing, yeah. Three, well, I'm 636 because I'm from the county, all right? So look, <laughs> I was born and raised in St. Louis. I was here for 24, 25 years of my life. I love this place. Uh, I introduced these folks to Square Beyond Compare, Emo's Pizza. So these jokers, uh, did not believe me when I ordered this for the first time. So for the record, I ordered three extra large pizzas, one large piece of three XL pepperoni, one large barbecue chicken piece because often has peculiar taste in pizza. You just wanted to be different. Um, but here's the thing, these are crackers and pizzas, right? And all of us are gonna eat a substantial amount and the worst thing that can happen here is we run out of pizza. So, not on my watch. Not on my watch. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and guess your your score, but Thank you. is it five stars? Yeah. So most people either hate it or love it. No, it's, it's very polarizing. Polarizing pizza. Austin, what do you think? It's access, acceptable? All right. All right, and I'm happy to report that all of them said that it was great pizza, <laughs> which is not the typical response. Because people, people have different expectations, but I sure. think what it is is I inculcated their subconsciousness. I was like, hey, look. You set certain expectations. I did set, it's like cracker thin, we have Provel cheese, here's what Provel cheese is. It's got some caraway seeds on there, this is great, this is my favorite, you're gonna like it, I bet you're gonna <laughs> like it, aren't you? He placeboed us. I did, I did, threatened them. No, it was great. So I say St. Louis Bread Company because I'm from here. Love this place. But uh, I will say this, living in San Diego is awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, all right. In Austin's Sarcopenia lecture, he made the point that he wouldn't be as worried about a 75-year-old jack dude who presented with the flu, but would be worried more about a 74-year-old who just lost a bunch of lean body mass. What is the mechanism by which increased levels of lean body mass protect the older people against things like flu or pneumonia? Can I just say that you're not saying you, you're not saying necessarily they protect them from the actual infectious etiology. You're saying, and what you did say, it 
protect them from a bad outcome secondary to that infectious sure. etiology. Yeah, the best way to prevent that stuff is to get your immunizations, but you know, like you know. vaccines. But you know, big vaccine is so you know paying us handsomely. For I'll expect this. that check. Yeah, <laughs> from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Big Pneumovax. That's coming right. Through. <laughs> Can you imagine? He's <laughs> getting Prevnar and Pneumovax checks. Yeah. All right. So the mechanisms of frailty, of sarcopenia, of cachexia, all these kind of categories of a decrease in lean body mass are really complicated. It has to do with inflammatory processes, immune processes, endocrine hormone-related processes, uh, processes related to your kind of your energy, metabolic status. So there's a tons of th tons of things that when sarcopenic, sarcopenia can be a reflection of those bad things going on, meaning it can be a proxy or a surrogate marker of a whole bunch of bad stuff going on underneath that then reflects an increased risk for bad things happening. But in addition to that, remember how I mentioned that lean body mass, particularly your muscle mass, is a storage site for amino acids. And that serves as a reservoir for these amino acids in periods of high stress, of fasting, of illness, things like that, for your critical organs that actually need these amino acids to be able to do their normal functions, do what they need to do. So it's a two-pronged thing. One is that the sarcopenia reflects all these other bad things going on under the hood that uh, leave you more susceptible to complications from these things, whether it's the flu, pneumonia, or even increased risk of like post-operative complications if you're to undergo surgery or something like that, right? So if I admit an 85-year-old person to the hospital and somebody suggests uh, somebody suggesting that they need to undergo surgery, I'm like, they're at pretty high risk of having some complications, likely of dying from this, from from undergoing this surgery because of bad things happening because of all this other all this other evidence that I have to suggest that but also if they're sarcopenic and they have low lean body mass, low skeletal muscle mass, they have relatively little what we call a physiologic reserve. This reserve that under periods of stress, they cannot tolerate it as well. And they're at risk of various complications, whether that be a cardiovascular complication or they go into renal failure, or they have some other horrible complication that can ultimately result in worse things happening or, and or death. Um, but unfortunately I see this nearly every day because again, yeah. most of the patients that I see are frail in some fashion, whether they're cachectic or they're sarcopenic obese, uh, or they're just sarcopenic on its own. And all these things are just increased risk for bad things happening. And so that means that when I'm doing things to people, I have to be very cautious about what I'm doing, particularly to these older people that I see most of the time. So if I have some, somebody who's really enthusiastic about some interventions, I'm going to say, Hey, let's Re, you know, rein in the excitement about doing this thing to this person because there are some sig significant risks that we could cause some harm here, right? And we have to be cognizant of that, uh, particularly because they're thin and frail and weak. Maybe if they really need this, maybe we can get them to a better nutritional status, better strength state before we do this. If it's more of an elective thing, if it's an emergency, you do what you got to do, or you figure out how necessary it is for them, their current yep. situation. But. One really cool thing that I think gets overlooked with respect to muscle mass is that when you train it and you engage it in like hard efforts on a regular basis, it actually releases hormones that act locally and also systemically to do really awesome things like decrease inflammation, okay, decrease pain, uh, for example, improve immunological function. Etc. They're called myokines, these little muscle-derived hormones, and they do a bunch of really awesome things. And failure to actually use your musculoskeletal system to do to engage in regular, you know, vigorous physical activity, I think, is one of the big, big problems. I mean, it is, in fact, uh, yeah, uh, one of the big, big problems of sure. modern society. And, and uh, it's funny we did 
last night we recorded this little segment called this or that uh where people asked us questions it was this or that and so one of the questions was like would you rather all doctors know about the physical activity guidelines and specifically re recommend resistance training or would you recommend that all doctors know about the nutri new nutrition guidelines and recommend those and we're like unanimously physical activity guidelines yep. so we think it's a bigger bigger biological lever to pull and uh, so if you want to help your parents your grandparents family members other family friends etc uh, age gracefully and have a good high quality of life get them to train get them to train take them to the gym with you okay three more questions left one of three you are both very specific with your language does this stem from med school legal ramifications in business or have you both always been like that <laughs> definitely haven't been like that uh yeah so i don't not necessarily legal ramifications either. I don't think either of us have this like preconceived thought where like, this could get me in trouble. Um, I haven't been sued a whole bunch. No, but, I, but I, th I think we're both very clear on the extent uh, of how confident we can be in saying certain things. And we want to say things that are, you know, as clear as possible and as accessible as possible and stated uh, in, in a way that's also true. So, <laughs> we have to say them in a way that is very carefully selected. Um, and so neither of us wants to be wrong and neither of us wants uh, to, to be uh, misunderstood. So we try to use very careful wording to accomplish all of those tasks and be succinct uh, in a way, even though I fail miserably. Yeah, you do. The succinctness. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. You leave out the nuance. That's why I edit your stuff. I bring the nuance. You, you leave out the new, and I got to bring, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree. I don't have a ton to add. I mean, I think it's just, I, I would, the things that I say, the claims that I make, I would prefer to be able to defend and not necessarily in a legal sense, but I'd be able, I'd like to be able to support what I say. And that means that I can only go so far as what I'm able to defend. If I, you know, I, I'm not a fan of just making shit up, which a lot of people are fans of making shit up. That's easier. It's certainly easier. It's do certainly you easier. you know? Especially if you can just you know ignore, block, whatever people who. Can you imagine what we could do? We could do so much <laughs> if we just decided to make stuff up. Yeah, say things very confidently because the public prefers concrete answers. Yeah. Right. And then we just we're doctors, so yeah. Also like super strong, so why <laughs> check that moderately strong. Well, yes, yes, right. In the grand scheme of things, moderately strong, <laughs> unimpressive. Also, it's powerlifting; no one cares. But uh, yeah. yeah, we could do a lot with that, and it would be so much fa faster and easier to do. You just, yeah, we wouldn't have to read anything. You just say things. Yeah, <laughs> all your pains from adhesions, I can fix them. Yeah, pay me. Sure. The reason why you're not your training, you know, is not going well is because you're not following my nutrition plan. My top secret, you know, gains, you know, master three thousand nutrition plan. <laughs> and, you have to sign up for my eight-week course ends tomorrow. All right. Uh, second to last question. You are both big on saying that if you read something online that is demonstrably false or inaccurate to just move on with your life and not engage. <laughs> have you always been this wise or was this learned from experience? It's definitely learned from experience. And, and, and probably from me. Yes. <laughs> I, like, I like it. I, I like it arguing with these idiots <laughs> because because it's fun it's just fun to see the mental masturbation that they have to do to maintain their own personality 
right? Like they are their personal view of themselves. It's like they have to go through all these hoops just to maintain, kind of confirm their own previous like a uh, view of themselves, of the world. Uh, and it's like, you have no expertise in this. All right, but I, just to watch people squirm, it's so much fun for me. <laughs> but here's the ultimate. So I feel like you're, the question said. I do it less. I do it less, but yeah, because okay. I only engage in ones that I think. The that, question said, "Why don't you do that?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you're like, "Here's why it's awesome the, to do." Yes, right. Oh, but the what, differences between us. Yes. But sure. when I when I engage, it's only in a situation that's either highly public where everybody's gonna see, and I think that I'm gonna get some you know, social That's currency fair. out of the deal, or that I control the playing field, meaning you can't delete your thread, for example, or I could just block you or kick you out of the group if you start being you know, very, very uh, uh, aggressive and, uh, and breaking the rules of the group. Uh, that being said, in the last week, I've dealt with anti-vaxxers, I've dealt with uh, lipid uh, cardiovascular health deniers, uh, dealt with, uh, um, people suggesting that uh, barbell training um, is dangerous, and particularly for the back and the joints, just bad on your joints. And uh, also people that say that I said that I uh, wasn't doing enough for the vegan community because <laughs> you owe it to them. <laughs> and um, you know, so yeah, I've been in some arguments recently. But I, I think the reason why I engage in less of these now is because I've been just sucked in and wasted so much time and ultimately it doesn't matter because nobody else is reading these things nobody is talking like at a level where you're going to understand the other person's point of view you're going to change their opinion and then ultimately it's just one person one person who if they have that much time to engage with you it's just not important just let them go on living their life too yeah you know yeah my indifference in these matters knows no bounds. Yeah. <laughs> so I am a big fan of doing no harm and helping people who want to be helped. Sure. And so I tend to not get sucked into these things. Or if somebody tags me in one of these stupid posts and is like, thoughts? Yeah, we, yeah, like, we don't respond to those. No. I don't really have thoughts. Until we're blocked. Yeah. Right. We found out we were blocked by the functional patterns guy, which yeah. is unsurprising. Unsurprising. <laughs> yeah. If you've blocked us on social media, like your account's trash. <laughs> There's a hundred percent correlation. Yeah. A lot of a, a lot of this, <laughs> a lot of this has come from just the things that I've learned about social psychology and stuff like that. Yeah. You, tribe psychology. Belief, belief change and stuff like that. Yeah. The likelihood that I'm going to, you know, actually change somebody's mind is vanishingly small and uh, the impact that that would have is similarly vanishingly small. Uh, so uh, I just don't bother because I have, you know, bigger places where I could put my time, efforts and generate better outcomes. So yeah, I just don't care enough to deal with these people. You know, it's interesting knowing all the tribe psychology stuff and like social psychology things, I think it does actually make us a little bit more amenable to change uh, because we're like, Consciously trying to not behave yes. that way. Yes, and also just having insight. Yeah. It's been like, ooh, you're doing that thing again with the. Yeah, so if you don't listen to the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I would recommend listening to as many episodes of it as you can so that you can recognize how you're being stupid and, you know, consciously yeah. try to not be stupid. You gotta see your blind, own blind spots. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you have a spouse for big, that. Big fan of that. Other times you have podcasts. <laughs> I prefer podcasts. It's fine. All right. To each their own. Hey, yeah. last question. When discussing non-modifiable things like genetics, is there a percentage or way to measure just how much of your genetics are responsible for in terms of training outcomes? Can you ever truly overcome something that is genetic? 
Example, someone with a tendency to carry excess abdominal weight, will they ever have a six pack? Uh, so is there a way for you to measure this? Uh, no. No, we have rough estimates of like how much of certain of different training outcomes are related to genetics. So for instance, we think like strength hypertrophy outcomes like 50%, uh, weight at related outcomes like higher than that. Some, some uh, people will say up to 70%, but we're still trying to uh, parse that out. But you can't measure it. You can't like take a blood test and then be like, actually you're at 65%. Yeah. Or, yeah. So we don't know that. Even if you had a full on like genome uh, <laughs> sequencing uh, of, your, of, your own, uh, of your own genome. So we can't really tell you. Um, and then can you ever truly overcome a something that is genetic? There are some things, yes, through heroic measures or uh, ultimately a change, uh, behavioral changes that are uh, in line with that goal. For instance, losing body fat, yeah. You could have a person who was, you know, was born to two overweight parents, has been overweight their whole life, um, you know, who ultimately achieves a low enough body fat to have visible six pack. Um, and they could maintain that for the rest of their life. That could happen. It's certainly not the norm, but- The RPE will be high. It could be high for could a period be. of time. Yeah, but it's possible. Things change. Sure. Um, on the other hand, things like a person who's got a 16 inch vertical jump, who you know wants to turn that into a 35 inch vertical jump. You mean like you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, gonna, it's not gonna happen, but you could still you know lift a lot of weight. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's right. So it just depends on some things have a little bit more uh, ability, the greater ability to be modified uh, than other things. Uh, things like height, for instance, if you know you want to play in the NBA and that's your outcome that you're really get, gunning for, but you're five foot five, you know, unlikely to happen. Pain in the cards. Yeah, you know, you could be Muggsy Bogues, <laughs> the next, you know, the second coming. Yes, but it seems unlikely. Yeah, you know, there are no pygmies that have ever made the, <laughs> and, and it made it to the NBA. On they the other hand, plastic dwarfs who yeah. made it to the NBA. On the other hand, if you're seven foot tall and between the ages of 25 and 45, you're you probably have, in the NBA. You have a one in five chance of actively being in the NBA right yeah. now. <laughs> so if you know somebody who's a true seven footer, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The only thing I would add to this is the first part of the question. Um, is there any way to measure it through testing? And oh, here we go. Testing comes up once again. <laughs> here we go. Should you get tested? Do you want to know? Um, and very often the answer is no, you don't want to know. So I, I put out some recommendations in terms of the things that we recommend prioritize for health purposes, the tests you should or shouldn't get, things like that. There's a really interesting paper. I reviewed it for our first uh, research review. It had to do with genetic testing. And what they did was they performed a bunch of genetic testing on these individuals in two cohorts of individuals. And the first cohort, they did some genetic oh, testing the, uh, related to their genes as they, I'm trying to remember uh, the, the outcomes. One had to do with like their uh, aerobic kind of uh, predisposition for perf aerobic performance. And the other one, what they were testing for a particular gene, the FTO gene that has something to do with satiety after a meal. So they did testing on these individuals and what they did, the clever part of the experiment was when they delivered the results of the testing to these individuals, they randomized the results that they got to either the true result or they made up, the they, not they made up, but they gave them the alternative. And then they did some repeat testing on these individuals. So for example, in the individuals for, with respect to the aerobic performing performance uh, gene that they tested, 
they were either told that they had the gene that would improve their performance or decrease their performance, and then they were randomized in terms of the results to either be told that they had the good gene that would improve your performance or the one that would decrease it. And then when they got the uh, FTO gene tested that had to do with satiety, i.e. how full you get after a meal, they were randomized to be told you have the version of the gene that'll make you super full after a meal, make it super easy to you know, be full and lose weight and things like that, or to be told that they had the other version where they wouldn't have that. And in it fact- glu- It was glucagon, wasn't the, hor- was the hormone, I think, right? Uh, well, they measured ghrelin GLP, as one example. GLP-1. They measured GLP-1 and, uh, and they measured ghrelin as, as outcome measures of their satiety. And in fact, what they found was that the hormone measures after a standardized meal, they gave them a standardized meal and measured how full these individuals got and, how, and the level of the satiety hormones, the fullness that they experienced was in line with what they were told their genetics were, not what their actual genes would have predicted. What? Super weird, one of the coolest studies I've ever seen and suggesting that knowing, learning about your genetics can influence your actual physiology in these situations. So that would lead me to suggest <laughs> in this situation, how much your genetics are responsible for in terms of training outcomes. Can you ever truly overcome something that is genetic? If you were to go and get your genetics tested and they said for however they would determine this, your genes suggest that you will never squat more than 225. Your genes suggest that you will never get below 20% body fat how much that would then influence what ultimately becomes reality for you, yeah. right? From a nocebo standpoint. There is a substantial potential for harm there. I recognize there is a potential for benefit somehow, I guess, if it, if you, if it tells you that you know you have a genetic predisposition to be super jacked, but that seems unlikely. Barbell so medicine's that's actually, not a, we're actually starting genetic testing. So what we'll do- I hereby submit your, my resignation to yeah. barbell medicine. <laughs> No, no. So you for send unnecessary us, testing. <laughs> you send us a saliva sample, and all of the results that go out is you're going to be super jacked, <laughs> super lean. Yeah, you're super self self efficacy. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. All right, I'm on board with that. Yes, yeah, yes. we'll just placebo everybody. That's right. So it's placebo testing right. again. I caution everybody. I, I don't know how many more times I'm going to end up talking about this. Probably for the rest of my career, caution people against testing that is not indicated, uh, because sometimes you don't want to know. Sometimes you don't want to know. Yeah. Funny thing is, uh, good old uh, Leah back there, the longest time she's like, I'm not a genetic outlier. I'm not a freak. And I was like, you've been to IPF Worlds, the highest level competition after not really a long time of training. Uh, I think by definition that you are an outlier. She goes, I'm not. I'm gonna get genetic test to prove you wrong. <laughs> and there's a particular gene, ACTN3, which if you have two copies of that, means that you're like super fast twitch, you're supposed to be the power lifter, the sprinter, the, you know, that's, that's your jam. And lo and behold, who comes back? Homozygous for ACTN3. Leah Lutz. Maybe I do have a genetic leg up on the competition. Yeah, it's oh, un- are you sure? <laughs> of course you do. You know, <laughs> she does sound like that. <laughs> yeah. How's So it's fine. Yeah. That's, so that's stop my getting tested. Stop getting tested. Just what does it matter? Well, how would it change what you do? Yeah. The only thing you do is hurt you. Yeah. So we have. I recently put put up a post about my like top recommendations for things that matter from a health standpoint. Right. Yep. When it came to testing. I think there, there are relatively few things that we recommend, and they tend to be demographic or individual specific. Yep. 
And so there's a resource. I primarily direct this to clinicians, to our medical students who are here. Go to the uh, AHRQ, uh, Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, their EPSS tool, Electronic Preventative Services something, selector, something like that. And you can put in your patient's demographics, their sex, age, their smoking history, and whether they're sexually active or not. And that can tell you the screening recommendations that you would recommend for the individual graded by level of evidence according to the USPSTF, US Preventative Services Task Force, level A, level B, level C, whatever, uh, based on how confident we are from the evidence that this is a screening test that you should perform, whether there's evidence against it or whether it's indeterminate. There's relatively few. The things that we can say for the overwhelming majority of people is a blood pressure check, yep. right? Weight, waist, OB, weight, 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 BMI, waist circumference is pretty good for everybody. Technically, lipid panel, there's actually restrictions on when you should start getting that. Yep. I'm, a, I'm a little flexible on when you can get your first lipid panel done. If it's younger than 35, for, for example, I'm okay with that. Your lipid flexible. Uh, and an HIV test for, for, for people. But outside of that, there are relatively few universal blanket screening recommendations that we should be putting across the whole population until you get to certain ages where specific things come into play. Like, oh, now you're eligible for colorectal cancer screening and we have evidence that colorectal cancer screening reduces mortality so you can get this test done. What about food allergy testing? Uh, food allergy testing, generally don't recommend it. What about vitamin deficiency testing? Nope, also don't recommend it. What about reverse T3? Don't get that done ever. <laughs> what about my hormones? That's not a thing. Uh, what about <laughs> gut health testing? Also not a thing. Okay, I think we wrapped it up. Yeah, so there, so if an individual, again, to echo what I described in the testosterone lecture, if there are signs, symptoms, reasons to pursue certain testing as a diagnostic process, then sure, that makes a ton of sense. I order tests all the time because I admit patients to the hospital who have signs, symptoms, or complaints that would suggest a certain pathology that I need to be looking for to diagnose. But a lot of people say, oh, I just want to get all the tests done just to know where I'm at, right? I just want to get a total. Just know. Yeah, I just want to know. I just want nah, to just don't. do all the things for me. Nah, and I'm like, you, mm, you probably don't actually want that. Yeah, right. Not. It could lead to a whole bunch of unnecessary subsequent testing, subsequent procedures, subsequent interventions, or psychological harm that you're best off just without. Just live your life. Just right? It's fine. It's nicer that way. You don't need to know. We did it. We did it. Thank you guys so much for coming out. It's been great.